Good morning and welcome to this Sunday sermon from Hersham Baptist Church. My name is Heather and it's my great pleasure to speak to you this morning. If this is the first time that you have found our YouTube channel and these videos, then why not click like and subscribe below and you can keep in touch whenever we upload them. Throughout this period of lockdown, we'll be uploading Sunday sermons every week, uh, as well as occasional other videos as well, to help you to grow in your faith with God at this time. So why don't I just pray as we come and look at God's work together. Almighty God, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we want to thank you for the Bible. Lord, we want to thank you, Lord, that even in this time when we can't physically meet with one another, Lord, that you are able to meet with us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray, come now, teach us from your word. Help us, Lord Jesus, to grow in our faith and to see you more clearly. Amen. Well, I'd like to start with a story uh, this morning and uh, see if it sounds familiar. I imagine a number of you might have had a similar experience before. A number of years ago, when my twin boys were about two years old, I had a very scary experience. We'd been out for the morning in the car, I think probably to a playgroup, and I was getting uh, the boys out of their car seats to lift them back into the house. At the time, we lived on a fairly busy main road in Hersham, and at two years old, the boys had no real road sense. So I would unstrap one at a time and lift each one into the house before going back for the other. And so on this occasion, I unlocked the front door with my keys and then for some unknown reason, took the keys out of the door and just tossed them onto the mat inside the door. I imagine a number of you can guess what might be coming next. So I went back and I got Sam out of the car first and I lifted him into the house. And just as I was going back to get Ben and unstrapping him from this his seat, the whole world seems to go into slow motion as I watch Sam put his little hands on the back of the front door and push it to like that. Now we had a door with a Yale lock, you know the kind where once the door has been closed, even if no one's locked it from inside, you can't open it from the outside. Yep, one of those. And so I realised that Sam was now stuck inside the house with my keys and Ben and I were outside on the other side of the door. It's every mother's nightmare and much as I tried to talk to Sam through the door and try and explain to him that he needed to push on the handle to open the door, he just didn't really understand what I wanted him to do and he sat on the mat and cried. I tried to get hold of my landlady who had a spare key but she was at work in London and I tried to get hold of Phil but he was at college at the time and couldn't get to us either. I was really stuck. Eventually I found the number for a locksmith and after about half an hour he arrived and was able to break open the door so that I could get to Sam and Ben and I were reunited with him. It was a scary experience. We were only separated for maybe 40 minutes uh, in total, um, but it was a scary time. And why am I telling you this story? 
Well, I'm, I'm telling you this story because it speaks to something that I want to look at in the Bible this morning. Because when Sam closed the door, he was separated from me. And when he was separated from me, his main caregiver in that situation, he was at risk. He couldn't get food. He could have put himself in danger with something in the house. And I suppose if I'd never been able to get back into him, he could have died ultimately. Now, thankfully, it didn't get anywhere near that serious. And Sam just sat on the mat and, as I say, was sad, but didn't cause himself any harm because of the swift actions of the locksmith. But it poses, I think, some interesting questions about our own separation from God. What does it mean to be separated from God, our Heavenly Father? What are the risks in being separated from him? And how do we get back to God if we do find ourselves separated from him? How can our relationship with him be restored? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, each week we like to give what we call the lunchtime summary of the sermon uh, so that you can give a quick summary of what you uh, listened to today to someone who you might be talking to later on in the day. And this is mine for today. Jesus is the way back to God. When we allow Jesus into our lives, he breaks the chains of sin and death and we are reunited with God. Jesus is the way back to God. When we allow Jesus into our lives, he breaks the chain of sin and death and we are reunited with God. And to look at this question this morning, we're going to think about three different things. The first thing is that without Jesus, we are separated from God's presence and his protection. Secondly, that Jesus is the way back to God's presence and protection and to eternal life. And thirdly, that through the Holy Spirit, God will use us to lead other people back to him too. So let's look at each one of these in turn. Firstly then, without Jesus, we are separated from God's presence and his protection. Now, humanity has been separated from God since the time of the fall. That's way back in just the first uh, two or three chapters of the book of Genesis. It didn't take mankind very long to find themselves separated from God. The Genesis story talks about how God created people and he made a beautiful garden for them to live in with him. The tree of life stood in the garden Eternal life with God was there for Adam and Eve to enjoy. But God also gave the people free will. He gave them the right to choose how they lived. God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree in the garden, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because, he warned them, if they ate from that tree then they would surely die. Now, it sounds like a pretty straightforward choice, doesn't it? Eternal life with God in a beautiful garden or death. 
But Adam and Eve fell for the snake's deception and they hungered to be in charge to decide what was right and wrong for themselves and not simply to trust God. And so they ate from that forbidden tree, despite their loving Heavenly Father's warning. And so, having sinned against God, having disobeyed him, their eyes were opened and sin and death suddenly entered the world. We were cut off from God's precious gift of eternal life with him and banished from the Garden of Eden. And we read these few verses in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword, flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, we found ourselves cut off from that garden, cut off from the tree of life, from eternal life with God. Humanity's sin had put us at a distance from God and separated us from him. But because of God's great love for us, ever since that moment, God has been working on another plan to reunite us with him. And when we read the Old Testament, we get a sense of that struggle. The people are aware of God's presence, but they're kept short of fully entering into it. From the time of the Exodus onwards, the people's worship of God centred around the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem. These places of worship were built according to detailed instructions handed down by God to Moses. The tabernacle had a a series of different chambers, different rooms within it, and right in the centre was the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, it's sometimes called. And it was here that God's presence was said to dwell. And in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we find a really helpful summary of the significance of the structure of this tabernacle. If you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and then only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And so we see that in this most holy place, this inner room, where God's 
presence was, was said to dwell, we see that the people were separated from this room by a thick curtain. It kept the people at a distance from God. Only the very high priest could enter into this room and only then once a year after a series of sacrifices had been made. These passages can seem a bit irrelevant to us now. This isn't the process we have to go through to come and worship God now. And I want to think about why that is. Because reading these passages of how people used to have to worship God gives me a fresh appreciation of the freedom that I have to come and worship God wherever and whenever I want to. But why? Why can we do that now? Well, it's because of Jesus. And we're going to think about how Jesus is the answer to that in just a moment. But before then, let's just look at that second uh, element of separation, which is that outside of Jesus, we are also separated from God's protection. As judge of the earth, God must discern between good and evil because evil must be judged. In Exodus, we read how Pharaoh had kept God's people in slavery for years in Egypt, subjecting them to ever harsher treatment. And so God sent Moses to be his messenger to demand that Pharaoh set his people free. But Pharaoh stubbornly refused to do so. And so God sent a series of plagues on Egypt. And after each one, he gave a fresh opportunity for Pharaoh to let the people go. But each time, Pharaoh refused. The final plague was the most deadly of all and would cause the deaths of the firstborn males of every household. In order to protect his people from the plague, God gave the people a series of instructions through Moses as to what they should do. They were to take a lamb without blemish, to kill it and to do the following. Then they are to take some blood and to put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of the house where they had eaten the lambs. The blood will be a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. The children of Israel were unaffected by the plague and Pharaoh finally set God's people free. They were protected by the blood of the lamb upon their door frames. This act of being set free is so significant for the Jewish people that they still celebrate it every year at Passover. They've just enjoyed the Passover festival in the same way as we have just celebrated Easter. They are still celebrating that moment when they were under God's protection through the blood of the lamb. And this act of protection by the blood of a lamb is, of course, an incredible foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood will wash away all our sin. If we are to be protected from God's right and just judgment upon the earth, then we need to be covered by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus Judgment is not a very popular theme in contemporary society and it's a difficult one to get our heads around but it is nevertheless a reality. We know that there is good and there is evil in the world 
And if God is a God worth worshipping, then he is a God who must rightly judge between good and evil. Just as we expect our own justice system in this country to judge between what is right and what is wrong according to the laws of our land. We would be up in arms if people who uh, robbed others or killed people were allowed to just wander freely in the earth. Instinctively, we, we know that it is right that evil should be judged and there should be punishment. And it's no different with God. We all deep down know that judgment is important and necessary. It's exactly why we feel guilt when we do something wrong. You know, why does my child look guilty when I say, did you take a chocolate bar when I asked you not to? And they look sheepishly around and they do so because they instinctively know that what they did was wrong and they feel guilt. And I, for one, am glad that eternal judgment is in the hands of one who is just and righteous and merciful. If anybody is going to be in charge of judging this world at the end of time, I am so glad that it is God who is doing it. And just as we saw God's judgment upon the wickedness of Pharaoh in Egypt all those thousands of years ago, the Bible tells us of a final judgment to come. We want to make sure that we are under God's protection when that final judgment comes. So let's find out how we can do that. So that brings us then to our second point. Jesus is the way back to God's presence and to his protection and to eternal life. We have just celebrated Easter and if you tuned into our Good Friday service then you will have heard me read the passage where Jesus is crucified and at the moment of his death we are told that the curtain was torn in two. That curtain refers to the very same curtain that we've just been reading about in the tabernacle. The curtain separating the people from the most holy place. The curtain separating the people from God's presence. So how does Jesus help? How is the curtain torn in two at the point of his death? Well, let's read in the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 5. And verses 18 to 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. And this, of course, is talking about Adam and about Jesus. Jesus is the one we read here who has reversed what the one man, Adam, set in motion. Just as through Adam's one disobedient act, sin entered the world. So we find that Jesus is the answer to the problem of the fall. Through him, many will be made righteous. And this is what Jesus says about himself. If you could turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10 
and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 13. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep will listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he is brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus is using this metaphor here to teach us about himself. So often Jesus taught in stories about situations that the people he was talking to might understand. And he uses this shepherding metaphor here because, of course, shepherding was a a massive part of the culture in which he was living and teaching. And he says that he is the gate for the sheep. And in this story, Jesus is the gate and the sheep are us, the people. In other words, he's saying that he, Jesus, is the way back into God's presence, into that safe and pleasant pasture. The gatekeeper is God and he will only open the gate for Jesus and all who follow him. So Jesus is the gate. He is the way through. He is the way back to eternal life, into God's presence, into that pleasant pasture. But he's also the shepherd. He's the one who will lead us through that gate. So how do we enter through Jesus? Well, the book of Revelation Chapter 3 says this, verses 19 to 22. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's that simple. Jesus is already there. He's already waiting for us. He is knocking on the doors of our hearts. But did you notice that he said that we have to open the door? The handle is on our side of the door. And I want you to take a look at this very famous painting which you can find on the walls of St Paul's Cathedral. And you can see in this painting that there is no handle on the outside of the door where Jesus stands. He's knocking, but the handle isn't there. The handle 
is on the inside. And that's significant because the onus is on us to respond to Jesus. He has, he has issued a free invitation to enter in with him. But we need to respond to him. First of all, we read in Revelation, but that we need to repent. That is that we need to acknowledge the sin in our life. We need to acknowledge all of those things that separate us from God. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin in us, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. You know, you, you, you may, by the standards of this, of the law of this country, you may feel like you're a good person. You might not have ever stolen or, or hit someone or killed someone. But each one of us sins against God. There is selfishness in our hearts or pride in our hearts. Well, we're unkind to people. We say mean things. There is sin in each and every one of us that has separated us from God. And we need to find a way back to him. And the only way that we can do that, we read here, is through Jesus, by allowing Jesus into our lives. He is the only sinless, righteous one who can lead us back through that gate to be in God's presence. So if we let him into our lives by opening that door, by hearing that knocking and opening that door, then he will lead us through the gate into eternal life. But he's not going to force his way in. To us has been given the right to choose. Since the very beginning, we've had the right to choose. Just as Adam had the choice whether to trust God and stick with eating from the tree of life, or to try and find his own way by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have the same choice now. In Jesus, we've been given a second chance to choose. But we've got to choose wisely. Because the door that Jesus has opened for us in himself, it won't be there forever. We've been given a second opportunity. Will we open the right door. This is the warning, the sobering warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 25 verses 10 to 13. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And again, this is another story that Jesus is telling to try and explain to the people following him what's going to happen. And he uses this picture of a wedding banquet. And often we see Jesus uh, described in the Bible as a, as a bridegroom. And, and we are, are his bride, the church, coming to be with him. But the door isn't going to be open forever. And if anything was going to stir us to think seriously about these questions, then a pandemic causing widespread and unexpected deaths throughout this world has got to be it, hasn't it? The door will not be open forever. You do not know the day or the hour, says Jesus, 
Don't leave it too late. In his mercy, God has given us all a second chance to come and be with him because we are his precious creation who he loves so much. He's given us another chance to be with him. He doesn't want to leave us in this world full of sickness and death and suffering. He has a much more perfect plan for us. A beautiful world, just as we get a glimpse of it in the, in the first uh, one or two chapters of the Bible with the Garden of Eden. A beautiful place where we will dwell with God, where there will be no suffering, no tears, no dying. Oh, how I long to live in that place with God. But there is only one doorway and that doorway is Jesus. He is the only spotless lamb who can make a way for us to be back with God. He is the perfect lamb. His blood is offering enough. All that symbolism in the Old Testament, it comes home to rest in Jesus. Will we see it and will we enter through him? Now is the time. Don't leave it too late. So our third and final point then is this. Through the Holy Spirit, God will use us to lead others back to him too. As followers of Jesus, he now wants to use each and every one of us to continue his mission here on earth and to lead others back to him. But if we are going to have the power and the courage to continue Jesus's mission, then we are going to need the same power that he had. And he has made that possible through the Holy Spirit. Check out Phil's sermon on being a spirit-dependent church from a couple of weeks back if you want to find out a little bit more about this. But for now, let's read these words in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11 and verses 9 to 13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to go Give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Having been filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles found themselves being empowered to perform incredible miracles and being able to speak with boldness and authority about Jesus. They were able to do that because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit They took up this promise that Jesus gives here. And we read right at the beginning of the book of Acts in chapters one and two, how the uh, how at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit first came upon them. They were first filled with the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts picks up uh, when Jesus ascends back to heaven shortly after he had risen from the dead at Easter. And we go on to read in the book of Acts through its many chapters uh, describing the life of the early church. Many, many miracles and powerful works that the disciples were able to do because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I want to read to you uh, just about one of those here. And it appears in chapters three and four of the book of Acts. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? And then a little later on into chapter four, it says this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This story is just one of so many you can read about in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters. What I continue to find so astonishing is that not only has God, by his grace, saved me and provided a way through Jesus back to his presence, But he is also granted to me and to each one of us who follow Jesus the incredible blessing of working with him to take others on that same journey. God sent his son to save us and bring an end to the separation we have experienced from him. But his plan for us doesn't stop there. He now wants us to work with him to help others do the same thing. We are Jesus's hands and feet on the earth now. He's back in heaven. We're the ones here on earth. We're the ones who he has left to carry on that work, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every nation, that people will know how they can get back to God. It's, it's up to us now. In the power of Jesus, but it's us, it's our voices, our hands and feet that must go out. Jesus summarised his mission in these words in Luke 4. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. 
He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What an incredible mission. That mission is now yours and mine to continue in Jesus' name. And we can do it because the same spirit who was upon Jesus is freely available to fill every one of us and to empower us now for that same mission if we will just ask him. It's a big mission and it's a scary one at times for sure. But don't we want to be the ones like Peter and John who were able to give away what has been freely given to us by God? If we now know the way to get back into God's presence, to eternal life, don't we want to share that most precious gift with others around us? If he has empowered and emboldened us to share the gospel with others and perform miracles in Jesus' name, shouldn't we do just that? So I want to finish with just a couple of points of application. There's been a a lot of verses that we've looked at today. But how can we take these things and work them into our life? How can we apply them to our situations? Well, there's a couple of things here. Firstly, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've never opened that door to him, then the message for you today is to open the door. Jesus is standing at the door and he is knocking and you only need to open that door and he will enter into your life. He will turn it around and he will lead you into a new life, eternal life with God, a life full of hope, a life which will set you free from the chains of sin and death. Not even death will hold you now. But don't delay. Open it today. It won't be open forever. So take that opportunity today to open that door and he will come in and be with you. And secondly, then, if you're already a follower of Jesus, then the message for you today is this. Though you might be feeling a bit trapped or frustrated behind your own physical doors at the moment in this time of lockdown, Remember that when we are in Christ Jesus, then we have been set free. Not even death can hold us now. And secondly, why not use this time to pray, to read your Bible, to draw closer to God and ask him to open those doors of opportunity for you to share the gospel with others and to work for his kingdom, even through this time. If you've never asked Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit, then don't delay. Ask him now. Anyone who asks, to him it will be given. The door will be opened. The gift is there for all who will ask. And Jesus has so much work for us to do. So let's not waste the time, but let's use it to see many more effective doors open for God's kingdom to keep on growing. We're just going to take a minute now to pray, to reflect, to ask God to speak into each of our lives. 
And then we're going to finish with a couple of songs of worship in response. Almighty God, we want to thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he is the gate that you have provided, the way that you've provided back to you, God. Thank you, God, that you have such incredible plans for us, Lord. You have, uh, Lord, you long for us to dwell in eternity with you, where there will be no more death or crying or tears or shame. Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity, this second chance. Lord, have mercy upon us. Help us to take that opportunity. And Lord, help us to work with you in this amazing mission to bring many other people back to you as well, Lord Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Embolden us. Give us power and courage and the right words, Lord, to share this good news with other people and to perform amazing miracles in your name that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.